see Mount Rushmore. They haven't seen that yet. And uh, if you uh, want to transform your life, take our interns on a six-hour trip. <laughs> they'll, uh, they'll really give you some perspective. We had a great time, just a great time. Listened to a lot of preaching and just uh, had a wonderful time. Uh, while the children are dismissed, we're going to go to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. It is a blessing to see our children and uh, seeing them. It's good to see Mrs. Aidy here, praying for her as she had a little spill and continue to pray for Lynn and there's others that the Lord's working on, working through in their life. So, all right, Mark chapter 8. There's a story about a man who went to the doctor after... Weeks of symptoms, because that's what men do. We don't go immediately. We wait until things get really bad. And so the doctor examined him carefully, and then he called the patient's wife into his office and went, uh, wanted to kind of let her know what was going on before he talked to him. And he said, your husband is suffering from a rare form of amnemia, uh, anemia, sorry, anemia. The bad news is that without treatment, uh, he's going to be dead in a few weeks. And the good news is that with proper attention and nutrition, he should get better. And so he said to his wife, this is what you need to do. Every morning early, get up, fix your husband a hot breakfast, the whole thing, pancakes, bacon, eggs, the whole deal. He'll need a home-cooked lunch every day. Uh, then an old-fashioned meat and potato dinner every evening. It would be helpful if you could bake frequently. Make cakes and pies and homemade bread. These are things that will allow him to thrive. One more thing, he said. His immune system is weak, so it's important that you keep the house spotless at all times. It would help also if you give him a lot of affection all day, every day. So the wife walks out of the room and uh, walks into the room where her husband is. And she has, of course, a very sad look on her face, and the husband seeing that said, what what the doctor tell you? Is it serious? And his wife said, the doctor says you're going to die. <laughs> so, sometimes we're not willing to do what it takes to make something work. Amen. I thought of that with VBS this week, so we're just going to do what it takes to get it done. In our text today, we see a very unique and if I'll be honest, actually a confusing scene. I want to read in a moment here. Jesus heals a blind man, but that in itself is not the odd thing because Jesus healed people all the time. Let's read here and see if you can catch it as we start at verse number 22. Mark chapter 8, And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town and when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands upon him and asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again to his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. I want to preach today for a few minutes on the two half-blind men. The two half-blind men. Father, I pray you'd help us. In these next few minutes, may we be challenged from your word in a specific way in our lives, and then may we be submissive to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the second of two miracles that are only recorded in the book of Mark. 
The first one uh, is in chapter 7, the healing of the deaf mute. Both times Jesus took the men out of the city and away from the crowd, and it doesn't tell us specifically why, but maybe to avoid publicity. Also, this town was under the judgment of God, according to Matthew chapter 11. And here's the odd thing, though, about this miracle that we read here. This is the only miracle in all four Gospels that we have recorded at all by Jesus that is a gradual one, a step-by-step miracle. He touches the man's eyes, and the man doesn't see clearly. He only sees part way. And to be honest, this has always been a mystery to me. I've read this story for years, and I've not quite gotten it. In fact, uh, about a year ago, I determined I was going to preach on this passage. I still have the notes in my, I have a working on file, and I still have the notes. And I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out and preach on it. And uh, so I did a deep dive into this story, and I read what other men had to say about it. And do you know what deep meaning I got out of this passage? Not a thing. Not a thing. Nobody knew. Nobody can really come up with what's going on here. And one of the things that bothers me with commentaries, I don't know if you read commentaries or not, but sometimes I'm struggling with something or I don't quite figure out what the text is saying or maybe just need another perspective. And I go to a commentary and the more difficult it is, the more them guys just skip over those passages and just don't have anything to say about them. You know, I wonder why are we buying you in the first place? But this is one of those. It's really not explained. And then on top of that, Jesus spit on his eyes, the Bible says. Who, I, I like to illustrate stuff, so who wants to volunteer? If I have somebody come up, okay, no, I'm just kidding. I would love to do it to one of our interns, but I'm not going to do that to them. So uh, there is a, a little bit of an idea that saliva is considered to have medicinal value. According to Dental Sphere magazine, uh, the human saliva can be used as a natural ointment for external wounds, a cure for pimples or acne, and a cure for boils that occur during summers, and also for lubricating eyes. So if you have any of those issues or those problems, Pastor Forsberg will take care of them for you, okay? You can come to his house and he'll spit on you. No, seriously though, do you see the awkwardness when we talk about spitting on people is one of the greatest offenses you can do. I mean, you, you see it occasionally in the news or something where somebody spits on somebody. and That's a terrible, terrible offense. A spitting on people is not socially acceptable. And yet Jesus did that with this man. And can I tell you that sometimes God works in your life in ways you don't understand. Oh, and further, sometimes God does works in your life that make you uncomfortable. And that's how he works. Now, when Jesus did this, so he spit on the man's eyes. He rubs them in with his thumbs. He removes them and he says, now, can you see? And he looks around and, and uh, focuses and he says, I, I can see shapes. I can see men, but they're like trees. They're just shapes that I see here. And so Jesus does it again. A two-step miracle by Jesus. This is not something we see anywhere else. So he does it again. And this time the Bible says, the man saw clearly. That's an odd thing to me. We're not told why Jesus healed this man in stages. Uh, I assure you, though, it was not because of a power shortage in Jesus. That was not the reason for it. Jesus had enough power to give this man sight. There's no question about that. 
And so maybe was there satanic hindrances? Did this man only believe part way? Uh, Jesus, the Bible says, had been unable to do many mighty works in Nazareth because of their unbelief, Luke chapter 4. What is going on here? Maybe Jesus, though, wanted to teach a deeper lesson about spiritual illumination. Now, there is one lesson, I think, here that is very clear. Sometimes God sends healing gradually. I mean, you'll ask and you'll beg and you'll plead for deliverance from a sickness or an illness or maybe another problem that's going on in your life and you'll want God to do a work. And sometimes it's gradual. Sometimes it doesn't come on your timetable. Sometimes the Lord does things a little gradually in our life. But we can see those lessons and others, and, but it leaves me a little underwhelmed about what's going on in this story. It seems like there's a greater purpose here. And I think today... I've got something. I think today we're going we're gonna to look at it from a different direction. And I think today I've got something that helps illustrate maybe what Jesus is doing here in this passage. I would like to look at the account from a different angle. Because I contend to you that in this chapter are two men that are half blind. He was half blind, half seeing. But I don't think he was the only one. I think we're going to see two men in this passage that are half-blind, and that's why I want to talk to you about the two half-blind men. Specifically, we are talking about Peter. Last week, we introduced you to Peter. Uh, of course, you don't need an introduction, but we talked about Peter last service and, and uh, a little bit about his life and the type of man that he was. And uh, I want to read now in verses 29 through 30. Same chapter. If you've got your Bibles open still, let's read. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. Now listen to this next line. Just picture this in your mind. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Him being Jesus. Peter starts to rebuke Jesus. That's a... Peter, remember last week we talked, Peter didn't really lack a lot of self-confidence in himself. He was quick to speak. But here he is rebuking Jesus. And it's an amazing thing how Jesus took a man like Peter, cut from such rough fabric, and polished him into the powerhouse that he ended up being. Peter had the kind of life experiences that formed him into the kind of man that Jesus would want him to be. And God will do the same thing in your life as well. He will send things your way to shape you and form you into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and verse 29. And, and you may look back even today, you might look back on your life and see things that you regret or maybe you did things or things were done to you that you regret and you wish that you could change and yet that's exactly what formed you into the person that you are. That's what formed your character. Maybe that's what God used to build you into the precious treasure that you are. And Peter had this in his life. Experience. Experience can be a hard teacher, wouldn't you agree? Experience is the only teacher that eventually kills her students. Uh, one person said it this way, good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. Have you ever experienced that in your life? 
And that's the, that was, that's Peter's life in a nutshell. He had, he lived this life of contrast, these ups and downs of Peter's experience. They were dramatic and they were often painful. His life, you could say, was filled with zigs and zags, just ups and downs and failures and triumphs. Here in this text that we just read, he made a tremendous confession about Christ's deity. He called out who Jesus was. It was wonderful. It was audacious. It was bold. It was from the heart. And it was real when he blurted this out. And this was spiritual sight. It was the awakening of a realization in all the disciples, but it was first stated by Peter. And that is sight that he had that not many other people had. But wait, the sight was not quite complete. Uh, he, the text goes on. And he goes from this great height of realizing who Jesus was and speaking it out to rebuking him in just a couple of verses. That's Peter again. Great heights to great depths. You see, Jesus began to tell them why he came and who he was, uh, how he's going to be our sin payment. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he was born to die for you and me. He is the Lamb of God, that sacrifice that was sent to pay for our sins because we cannot pay for our sins on our own because we're not righteous. And so Peter did not want to accept that. No, 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 Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. You're not going to suffer. And he starts to rebuke him. In that, he was still half blind. He had some sight. He knew who Jesus was. But he was still half blind as to what Jesus was all about. He saw the shape of who Jesus was, much like the man saw the shape of men as trees. He saw an outline, but he didn't have the full realization of what Jesus was all about. He did not understand the depths of Jesus' mission. He was half blind. He lacked spiritual vision. And as Jesus revisited the miracle to bring full sight to the man in the, uh, that we read a few minutes ago, uh, uh, the same thing had to happen to Peter. He revisited Peter. In fact, Jesus had to revisit him many times. And he does the same for us as well. You see, like Peter, we are only endued with partial sight. Oh, we think we know. We think we've got it figured out. We think we've got the answers. But the truth is, everyone is spiritually blind to some extent. And we won't say the words because we are far too uh, self-conscious for this. But with our actions, with our uh, attitudes, we basically say to the Lord with our lives sometimes, God, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what's going on. I know better. That's not going to happen for you or for me. And the truth is, everyone is blind. To some extent, the point of this miracle, I think, shows us kind of a picture of the spiritual blindness of Peter. He was partially seeing, but he didn't see all the way. Jesus, I believe, illustrated that blindness. See, the Bible's view of people is unique. We, we split them up very black and white. We basically divide it in two groups. We have good people over here. And they're doing the right thing. They, they see uh, truth. They see love. And, and they do it. And then over here we have bad people. And they are uh, resist the truth. They're blind. And they're bad. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says everyone is blind. Everyone is broken. 
The disciples of Jesus were blind partially, and the religious leaders were blind. The friends of Jesus and the enemies of Jesus, the blue-collar people, the white-collar people, the moral and the immoral. That's the breadth and the depth of spiritual blindness. And with this blind man, Jesus is trying to show that it takes more than one touch from Jesus to cure spiritual blindness. It sometimes takes a lifetime for us. It's, it, it is experiences. It is preaching like this. It is going to church. It's being around God's people. It's getting into the Word. It's prayer. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And over and over and over, He brings these touches into our lives because He wants to illuminate us. He wants to show us what He's all about. There are stages. There are multiple touches sometimes are necessary. It's a process of revealing that has to happen in our life. Even the best and most mature believers experience blindness. Let me tell you what one guy said, and I rank him quite a bit higher than me. That's the Apostle Paul. He said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part half blind. Now I know in part then I shall know even as I am known. By the way, this, this, this idea should give us patience. We are so quick to judge people who aren't as spiritually visual as we are. They're on a different level. Maybe they're blinder than we are. Maybe they are where we have been in the past, and they're at a different level, and we get very impatient with them. Now, all of us are, or at least should be, growing spiritually. And if you are doing that as you should, sometimes it's easy for us to look at somebody, teenagers, for example, and be impatient with them because they aren't where we think they should be. People have made it almost a game, and I've done it in the past, and I'm trying to wean myself off of it, but how, we love to pick on millennials, don't we? Weird dressers, tight pants, can't get into, can't get out of social media. We love to pick on millennials. And yet, uh, we're no better. If we're honest, all of us are blind to some extent. Here's something I want you to think about. We'll just do a little mental exercise. If you step, and by the way, again, with the idea that you're growing as a Christian, your 10 years from now self will look back at you right now and think, this guy's a fool, or she's a fool, making some dumb choices. And so, on behalf of your 10-year-old from now self, I'm just going to tell you, you're a fool. You're making some bad decisions, okay? I think we could all say that, right? I'm, what one of you, if you could get into Bill and Ted's time machine and go back to the past, what one of you wouldn't have something to tell your 18, 22, 25, 30-year-old self? I'd have some things to tell my 18-year-old self. Buy Apple stock. That's one thing I'd tell my 18-year-old self. But then there's a few other things I would have to tell my 18-year-old self as well. Make some better decisions. Don't do that. Uh, do this. Take this on. And so uh, if we could step back 10 years, we'd have something to offer ourselves. Why? Because you've been growing, hopefully. Because 10 years ago, you were more blind than you are now. And if you continue to grow in Christ like you should, 10 years from now, you'll see more than you do now. That'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? Growing in Christ. How in the world, then, can we look at someone who's not on our level and say, you fool, you fool? 
Jesus actually says in the Sermon on the Mount, whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And yet we uh, are impatient and critical with people who are not where we are right now. We ought to invest in them. We ought to love them. We ought to help them grow. We ought to put our arms around them and encourage them to get to the level that you're at right now. Let's never point our fingers at somebody who's at a level lower than we are. We get so, we get so caught up in the idea that this, uh, the local church is a, is a hotel for saints. No, no, no. It's a hospital for sinners. And we want to help them and be there for them. Aren't you glad someone invested in you? Man, I was a fool when I was younger. And I had a pastor who loved me and gave his time and his energy and his efforts, and he invested in me. And uh, it was a blessing, and it still is. Jesus' own disciples could barely grasp the simplest lessons. They proved this only a few minutes before when Jesus said in verse 17 here, we didn't read it, but in our chapter he says, Perceive ye not? Have ye eyes? And see ye not? They were at least half blind. They couldn't see what was uh, really in front of them. So what did Jesus do? He basically peppers Peter's life with three years of experiences, troubles, trials, difficulties, and tests that shaped him and molded him. And wow, did it ever mold him. you got to remember, Peter was a hothead. Uh, most pe- people with Peter's leadership abilities, which he definitely had, they do not naturally uh, excel at exercising restraint. They have a problem with self-control, discipline. Uh, they Moderation does not come to them naturally. Anger management seminars are very common these days for CEOs. And Peter had these tendencies. And hot-headedness normally goes with an active, impulsive, reckless personality that defined Peter. I want to tell you, show you just a couple of things in the Bible that Jesus taught Peter, and then we're going to see a place where Peter recognizes it's pretty neat. Jesus had to teach him restraint. Uh, Peter bore the brunt of many rebukes. We said last week Peter had the most praise from Jesus, but he had the most rebukes from Jesus. There was a contrast in Peter's life. I think of that scene in the garden when they're arresting Jesus, and Peter uh, tries to decapitate Malchus. Remember that story? There's different ideas of what's going on here, but uh, the, the story is pretty clear. They're arresting Jesus. Peter picks up a sword, and he goes in swinging. Uh, there's Roman soldiers everywhere. I don't know how, Peter, you think this is going to turn out, but he goes up and he swings the sword at Malchus. He is the uh, high priest's servant. Maybe he was trying to get to the high priest. I don't know, but he swings at the high priest's servant, Malchus, Malchus does that matrix move, goes back, and uh, he misses his head, grabs his ear, and his ear falls to the ground. Now think about that scene. Roman soldiers standing around. Did that guy just... I think he did. And there lies the ear. Before anything could happen, Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear, and puts it back on his face. Or side of his head, I guess. would be better. Wherever ears go, you know. So he puts it back on the side of his head. And heals him. An amazing scene. And he then rebukes Jesus. uh, And for for doing what he did. Uh, I'm sorry, Jesus then rebukes Peter for doing what he did. And how often do we react in anger? How often do we react in losing our temper? 
That was Peter. He constantly acted rashly. How often do we fly off the handle and embarrass ourselves? A fly is sitting one day on the handle of a lawnmower uh, somebody had left out in their front yard. And the fly is sitting there and is watching kids uh, walk to school. And as they're walking to school, they're one of the little boys trips and he falls down on the sidewalk. His lunchbox bursts open and his lunch falls all over. And he picks it up and he puts it back into the lunchbox and, and uh, goes on his way. But he didn't, re- he didn't see that he had missed a piece of bologna that had fallen out of his sandwich. The fly had not eaten that morning and was starving. And so he flew down off the handle of the lawnmower and he started to eat on that piece of bologna. In fact, the fly ate so much bologna that he could not fly anymore. And so he waddled across the sidewalk, across the yard, up the wheel of the lawnmower, back onto the handle of the lawnmower. And he sat there resting. But there was still more bologna down on the sidewalk. And so as he's looking at that for a while, he decides to go get some more. And he jumps off the handle, but because he was so full of baloney, he was too full to fly. And he went splat on the ground and it killed him instantly. The moral is don't fly off the handle when you're full of baloney. Amen? All of us have problems like that sometimes. It took me a long time to get there, okay? But we got there. It was probably embarrassing for Peter to get rebuked by Jesus here. He was just trying to defend him, but he learned from it. Later, he wrote in, the, in, in 1 Peter, his, his epistle, he wrote this in 1 Peter 2.22, talking about Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to that judge, judgeth righteously. I wonder if as Peter wrote these words, he didn't think on that scene, when he acted a little rashly, and Jesus had to rebuke him. Peter learned the lesson of restraint, and when he did, when he did, his vision improved just a little bit. Jesus also taught Peter uh, humility. Leaders like Peter are often tempted by the sin of pride. Uh, as a matter of fact, it can be the besetting sin of leadership for many, uh, thinking more of oneself than you ought to think. And it's an easy trap to fall into when people follow your lead and and they constantly praise you, they look up to you, they admire you. It's easy to let pride take root in your heart and your life. And Peter, he did not necessarily struggle with self-confidence. And so that's a wide-open book for pride. Uh, Peter's the one who jumps in with the answers to every question. He's the first one to talk, whether it's smart or not. Uh, Peter is the one that steps out of the boat and walks out on the water. Peter's the one that picks up the sword and goes after Malchus. Perhaps the greatest example of his overconfidence is found in Matthew 26 and verse 31. Jesus says, all of you shall be offended because of me. Uh, This night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Oh, wait a second, though. When Jesus said that, Peter's mind starts to go. Have you ever noticed, maybe you're one of those people, but when somebody else is talking, you're already thinking about your response? Have you talked to somebody like that? And as you're talking, they're just waiting to say something. They just can't wait to say what they have to say. That was Peter here. Jesus, while Jesus is talking, all of you are going to be offended at me. Peter, oh, no, 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 no. Not me, Lord. In fact, he says this, uh, though all men should be offended. In other words, all these jokers around me might be offended. Yet will I never be offended. 
course, as usual, Peter was wrong and Jesus was right. Why? Because Peter was half blind. He couldn't see himself. He couldn't really see what Jesus was all about. And he couldn't see himself very well either. You mess up in your life when you act on your blindness instead of your spiritual sight. Peter did deny Jesus not once but three times, just as Jesus told him he would. Peter's shame was intensified because of the boast that he had made. But Jesus used all of this to make Peter humble. And later, Peter would write in his epistle these words in 1 Peter 5, 5, Be clothed with humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. He learned his lesson. Humility became one of the virtues that characterized Peter's life. And he learned this by lessons forged in failure. Oh, dear friend, can I tell you, do not let failure keep you from realizing your potential. Understand that God uses all these things, whether it be troubles or trials, things that you have done or things that have happened to you, and He will use them as lessons to take you to greater heights than you can imagine if we respond correctly. And that was Peter. He learned humility. And then Jesus had to teach him love. A hard lesson for people to learn, like people like Peter to learn with a brash personality, is loving service to one another. They tend to see people as means to an end. Leaders are often so task-oriented that they become not people-oriented. And so they often use people to achieve their goals. I have several personal mission statements that I try to live by religiously. And one of them that I uh, saw years ago and, and have tried to live by intently is this statement. Do not use people to build your ministry. Use your ministry to build people. I see too many pastors who use people to build a kingdom. Use people to build a great ministry. I don't ever want to do that. I want to use my ministry to help people. To build people, not use people to build my ministry. And Jesus told the disciples in Mark 9.35, If any man desire to be first, the, the same shall be last of all, the servant of all. And Jesus constantly modeled that kind of loving servant leadership for his disciples. But nowhere more plainly than the upper room. When they're on that last night of Jesus' life, uh, they're there in a, uh, having a Passover meal in a rented room in Jerusalem. Now, when the people in Bible times sat, uh, we talked about this before, you know, we sit in chairs around the table. They would recline around the table, kind of in a circle there. And uh, I've, I've even tried this, and I don't know, who came up with that idea? Because that is the most uncomfortable way to eat and, and be around. I mean, you only have really one hand, and I like to eat with both hands, amen? I mean, shovel it in. But they uh, were laying there, and so basically your, your face, your, your head, and most notably your nose, would be close to the feet of the next person as they were around the table. And so it was natural for hosts, because roads were dirty or muddy and dusty, it was natural for a host to have a servant offer the service of washing a guest's feet when they showed up over for dinner. So it was just a common thing. If you came over to somebody's house, uh, we were at somebody's house for dinner last night. And you know what? They didn't even wash our feet. That was very offensive. But anyway, uh, we, we come over and, and they would come over and there would be sandals and be dusty. And so they would uh, wash the feet. They would have a servant do it. And by the way, this was not a job that they would post and people would sign up for, you know. Uh, I want to be a foot washer because who wants to wash feet? 
I don't want, do we have another volunteer? We can come up here and demonstrate that. Okay. Uh, I don't know about you, but that's not a job I would really want. And so, but they would have a servant, maybe a lowly servant to wash feet. But on this night, there were no servants. There's nobody there but the disciples and Jesus. And the disciples, two of one, they did not volunteer. And do you want to know why? Because Luke tells us that the disciples are having a conversation. Do you know what their conversation was? Which one of us is the greatest? That's what they were talking about. On Jesus' last night on earth, before he died on the cross for their sins, they're talking about which one of them is the greatest. And can I tell you about something in the mindset of one who is focused on uh, elevating himself, someone that is focused on building himself up and putting himself above others, and even in the middle of a conversation to say, I'm greater than you are, and for these reasons... That type of person will never, will never pick up a towel and serve another person by washing their feet. Because that person is self-focused. And so none of the disciples are volunteering. Uh, feet, feet are dirty still. And so the Bible says that something very interesting happened. Jesus Christ himself, in John 13, 4, riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And then he poured into a basin water, began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. <laughs> that doesn't happen if you're self-focused. That only happens if you're other-focused. And we ought to be focused on others. Lord, let me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me live for others that I might live like thee. That was what he was all about, others. Jesus himself took on the role of the lowest slave, and he started to go around and wash the disciples' feet. And while he did this, of course, he's given them a lesson here on love and humility and service. And most of them sat there like you and me would be in stunned silence. This is not happening. And yet it was, except for our good friend Peter. He didn't sit in stunned silence. He said in John 13, 8, Lord, thou shalt never wash my feet. Peter, the man of absolutes. I will never deny you. You will never wash my feet. You be careful with using the word never in your vocabulary. Remember when mom told you that? She was right. Be careful about using the word never. Peter was the master of the absolute statement. There was no shades of gray in his life. And... He was half blind in some areas. Jesus said gently in response, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part of me. So Peter, <laughs> less than a minute after he said, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Less than a minute later, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I love Peter. I just, he is all in. Whatever he's in, he is all in. There's no middle ground with, some, with him. It's always all or nothing with Peter, and I like that about him. It, it led him into some messes and some bad decisions. But I like people who are all in. Did Peter learn to love? He did. In fact, love became one of the hallmarks of Peter's character. He said, in, and he, he wrote this in 1 Peter 4, 8, and above all things have fervent Charity, charity is the Bible word for love. Have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. The Greek word for fervent is actinus. It means, uh, literally means stretched to the limit 
And Peter is telling us here to love to the maximum of our capacity. And when he uses that term, love shall cover a multitude of sin, that's not talking about covering up crimes. What that is talking about is we compensate for people's shortcomings and their uh, character flaws, and we love them anyway. That's what we ought to be about as God's people. It's a love that compensates for others' failures. The Bible tells us to love others. <laughs> I find it interesting. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors. The Bible tells us to love our enemies. They're often the same people. I think that's why it tells us that. We need to have the sort of love that washes a brother's feet, dirty feet. And those dirty feet, they might come in the form of marital problems or a prodigal child or a broken home. And But if we are focused on ourselves and if we are thinking that we are really something and God's really fortunate to have me on His team, then we won't invest in people like that. We won't love on people like that. And we won't make an impact in the lives of those who so desperately need us. We need to be willing to get our hands dirty with some dirty feet. Peter had been half blind, but his sight's improving because Jesus taught him love. And then Jesus had to teach him compassion. Jesus warned Peter that he was going to deny him. Then he said in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, Simon, behold, Satan had desired you that he may sift you as wheat. And here's an interesting thing. I don't want you to miss this. When he says that, you might expect Jesus to say, but I told him to take a hike. Satan wants to sift you. But I told him, no, oh, not my Peter. He my friend. I'm not going to let you do that. No, what Jesus said is, he's going to do that, and I'm going to let Satan do it. I'm going to let him shake the very foundations of your life. But Peter, oh, and this is so good. I have prayed for thee. Whew. Jesus Christ, our mediator. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. It was then that Peter arrogantly insisted he would never fail, before the, but before the night was over, he did deny Jesus, and his whole world was shaken. Satan did get him and sift him as wheat. His ego was deflated. His self-confidence was destroyed. His pride suffered deeply. And what did Peter learn from this? Remember, he was half blind. Jesus wanted to give him spiritual sight. And Jesus was equipping Peter. Part of his prayer was that he, Peter would strengthen thy brethren. And people with Peter's type of attitude and leadership abilities are often very short on compassion. They don't stop to care for the wounded around them as they should. Peter needed to learn the compassion through his own failure so he could strengthen others in their failure. For the rest of his life, Peter would show compassion. Uh, after being sifted by Satan, uh, Peter learned to be compassionate, gracious, kind to those broken by sin. He wrote this in 1 Peter 5, Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary the devil walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then he goes on, Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world, but the God of all grace, who hath called us into eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Peter understood human weaknesses because he had so much himself. And his sight was improving. One more, Jesus tried to had to teach him courage. Not the kind of courage that sends you roaring into a pack of Romans with a sword. Not that type of courage, but uh, by the way, Jerome Cady said this, it's a wise man who knows where his courage ends and his stupidity begins. I think we can probably identify with that. But Jesus even told Peter about his future in John 21. He said, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and thou walkest whether thou wouldest. Uh, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hand, and there shall another gird thee and carry thee where thou wouldest not. 
The price for serving God for Peter was persecution, oppression, trouble, torture, and ultimately martyrdom. Peter would need rock-solid courage to persevere. But as Simon, his life was full of contrast. He drew a sword on armed soldiers. He denied Jesus to a servant girl a few hours later. His courage, like everything in his life, was marred by instability because of his spiritual blindness. And we can start to see the birth of real courage in Peter on Pentecost Day when he was filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit and he spoke and 3,000 people walked the aisle, got saved and joined the church. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin and they tell him, no more preaching about Jesus, no more. It's done, you're finished. And Peter along with John uh, says to them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter tells us why he was filled with such courage, writing to persecuted Christians in 1 Peter 1, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than the gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found with praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Peter learned lessons that transformed his character, and he became the man that Jesus wanted him to be. He gradually changed from Simon to the rock. And that's who we have today. In closing, I want to give you Peter's words himself. If you want to turn there, it's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. We talked about how Jesus used circumstances, troubles, and failures to teach him these virtues. And in Peter's own words, he admits to the blindness we've been talking about. Look at what it says, verse number 5, 2 Peter. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, and knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindliness charity. Did, did you notice those? Those are the things we've been talking about that Jesus taught him. Jesus taught him those things. Through life struggles, through failures, through difficulties, Jesus is teaching him those things. And here's what's an interesting thing. Peter then tells us, what happens if we allow Jesus to teach us those things through our difficulties, through our troubles, through our trials, if we allow him to teach us those things, look at verse 9, but he that lacketh these things is what, class? Blind. He's blind and cannot see you far off. What a truth for us today. How many of us are blind? How many of us are blind to our own selves? How many of us are blind about what Jesus is trying to do in our life? How many of us are blind about making the right choices? Peter found that if you allow Jesus Christ to grow you and establish you, in other words, in other words, revisiting your half-blind eyes in ways you might not understand at the time, in ways that might make you uncomfortable at the time, if you allow him to revisit you over and over in the form of teachers that he sends into your lives and in the form of pastors and preaching and the word of God and the local church and other Christians and he, you allow him to teach you and grow you through all those different areas, your blindness will turn into sight. Isn't that a blessing? Boy, Peter's did. He came a long way from talking to Jesus to when he wrote First Peter, Second Peter. He came such a long way. It all depends, though, on how you respond to what Jesus brings into your life. Because how you respond to the things that aren't pleasant, 
the things that are hard. We don't learn and grow in the easy. We grow in the hard. We grow in the difficult. And that's what God wants for us. He wants us to grow. He wants to drop the scales off of our eyes that cause us right now not to be able to see ourselves, not to be able to see His plan, not to be able to see what He's doing. That blindness that all of us have, He wants to drop those scales. And to do it, it won't be pleasant. Boy, it certainly wasn't for Peter. But it was in the end, and it was worth it all when he got there. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe, just maybe, there are in the room today some Peters. And you have been dealing with some things, and you don't know why. You, you have been questioning what's going on that God is allowing these things in your life. And maybe he is trying to grow you past your blindness into clear sight. Would you allow him to do so today in your life? She's going to begin to play as you stand along with me, eyes closed, heads bowed, 